As always, I feel it a privilege to stand before a pul- in a pulpit and to preach the Word of God. I don't count this a light matter at all, but I do want us to have a good time as we're doing this. I don't think preaching should be stuffy. All right? I love how pastor preaches. I love the intensity he brings to it. And today, as we focus our minds on the Word of God, I want us to really, if I could encourage us, to really examine our own hearts on this. Because when we talk about things here, I want to talk about expectant living today. Expectant living. And so with that in mind, I'd like you to turn your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 11 to 14. Titus is one of those books that can get overlooked a little bit. You have First and Second Timothy, and then we're going to race to get to Revelation. <laughs> All right. And so Titus is kind of like, oh, it's that one of those books. But Titus is amazing. The, the, the depth of understanding of things in the book of Titus is, is something that's worth mining. Well, today I want to just take a little part of that. And let's mine it out and see what it has for us. But I want to warn you today. It's not always going to be pretty. Because the Spirit of God may challenge us today. And I don't know about you, but I know when I go to church, I want to be challenged. I want God to speak to me. I never want to sit in a pew and have God not speak to my heart. And I hope that that's all of us today. That as you're sitting there, you're saying, God, speak to me today. Speak to my heart. Change me. Challenge me. Not for my own worth, but for your glory. And I would hope that that would be our hearts today. Expectant living. What do I mean by this? Well, let's look at our text here. Titus 2, verses 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Let me ask you a question. Do you remember a time in your life when you were expecting something? I remember as a kid, whenever we'd order things, and back then when I was a kid, you ordered things, you had to wait for it. All right? Kids don't understand that today. Hey, we can order today. Oh, boop, it's here in two hours. <laughs> it's here tomorrow morning at the latest. But we had to wait. I remember getting, you know, ordering something in the mail and then waiting for it, expecting it. It's like, you know, go to the mailbox. Oh, it's not here. Oh, you go to the mailbox the next day. Oh, it's not here. Expecting. You've ever had that? I remember as a kid, I had that. How about this? A job. You ever went into a job where you, you interviewed for a job and you're like, I really, really want this job. <laughs> I mean, I really, and, and you're, you're waiting, you're waiting, but you know there's other people interviewing for the job, so you're like, ah, am I going to get it? Am I not? Am I going to get it? And you're expecting and you're waiting. It's like, it's like, come on, I want to hear about this. How about waiting to get married? All right, those of you who are married, you remember that, what it was like before you got married and you were engaged and you're waiting to get married? Do you remember what that felt like? It was, it expect, I can hardly wait for this to get here. And you lived in such a way that's like, oh, I'm just, okay, can we get this any faster? Can it happen any faster? 
you're expecting, right? And of course, we can't talk about living expectantly without thinking about babies. You know? Having a child. You know, you're pregnant. Not me, but you're pregnant. <laughs> and then it just seems like time goes so slow. That's what my wife said. It's so slow. But you're expecting, you're waiting, and you're growing, and you're waiting, and you're expecting. And, it, you know, we talk about expecting. Yeah, you're expecting this, but you're expecting like, oh, I can hardly wait. Expectant living. We know what it's like to live expecting. You know what? It consumes your thinking. You know, pregnant moms, it consumes your thinking, doesn't it? it? Decisions are made in light of that expectation. You're planning for it. You're looking forward to the day. Well, this is what our text, this is what our passage is all about. If you'll notice, there's a word in there. It says, waiting, verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope. Expectant living. In fact, in our text, we see this drawn out. Let me show you the words here. It says, to live in the present age, waiting. That's what this text is all about. To live in the present age, waiting. This is the attitude of the mindset of the framework in which we are to live And throughout the New Testament, this is the challenge, to live expectantly. In fact, two nights before Jesus was crucified, he took his disciples out into the Mount of Olives, just a short time outside of the city of Jerusalem. He took them to the Mount of Olives, and he gave them what we call the Olivet Discourse. Now, a lot of people think the Olivet Discourse is just a a bunch of teaching about prophetic events that are going to happen. And Jesus was teaching about this. He was teaching about the destruction of the temple that was going to come in 70 AD. And he was teaching on what was going to happen when he returned. But I want to challenge us that I don't believe the Olivet Discourse was about prophecy per se. Because he used that teaching to do something to his disciples or with his disciples. Because he gave them some illustrations in the Olivet Discourse. He talked about the fig tree. He talked about the days of Noah. He talked about a thief in the night and then a wise servant. And he uses these illustrations to show them that they need to live expecting something to happen. And then he finishes up the Olivet Discourse before the judgment time. He finishes up with two parables. The parable of the ten virgins and the parable of the stewards. And in each of those parables, his main emphasis isn't proclaiming what's going to happen in the future. The emphasis of those parables was this, to teach his disciples how to live when he was gone. Because he was going to be going somewhere pretty soon. And he wanted his disciples to know, this is how you live when I'm gone. And those parables talk about waiting, watching, and working. And that's the emphasis that Jesus had in the Olivet Discourse. It wasn't about just telling about future events. He's saying, when I'm gone, this is how I want you to live. Waiting, watching, and working. Well, today in our text, here in Titus chapter 2, I want to look at this. I want to look at the basis of expectant living and then the essence of expectant living. 
In essence, what I'm saying here is I want to talk about what's the foundation for us living expectantly? And then what does it look like? What does it look like to wait, to watch, and to work? And you say, Brother Rob, I know where you're heading here, but you're not talking about what we're supposed to be expecting. What are we supposed to be looking forward to? Well, of course, our text is very obvious, but I want to get to that in just a moment. When we talk about this expectant living. But I want us to do this, if you can do this for me. I want you to take those illustrations I gave you earlier about waiting for a package, waiting uh, to, to get married, waiting for a baby, expectant living, and I want us to superimpose those into how we should be living in our lives today as believers. So let's look at this basis of expectant living and the essence of it. And then ask ourselves, are we living this way? And that's the key question. Are we living this way? Well, let's look first at the basis. And I'm just going to give it to you here. The basis of expectant living is this. We are to live expectantly because of what Jesus has done for us and what he has promised us. We're to live expectantly because of what Jesus has done for us and what he has promised us. And I want to see this in our text. All right? Both of these are found right here in the text, what Jesus has done for us and what Jesus has promised us. So the first, what Jesus has done for us in verse 11, says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. All right, that's what Jesus has done for us. He himself brought salvation to all people. And then later on it says, in verse 14, who gave himself for us. All right, so right here in the text, we see the basis for living expectantly is what Jesus has done for us in the past. But I want to look at this, what he has promised us. And that's in verse 12, or excuse me, verse 13. It says, waiting for that blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of a great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what he has promised us. He has promised us his return, that he's going to come back. Again, I want to go back to the time right before Jesus was crucified. Because I think there's a lot of things here that we miss if we don't catch it. And in the last night before he was crucified, he gives a lot of instruction to his disciples. And part of that instruction is is what's going to happen next. And we see in John chapter 14, verses 1 to 3, this. He says, he tells them, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, there ye may be also. Jesus promised his return. Before he even left, he promised his disciples that he was going to come back for them. And folks, this is the promise that we have today. This is the basis for our expectant living, is that he is going to come back for us. What did he promise to the disciples? He promised them the kingdom, that they were going to be blessed in the kingdom. He promised them that all wrongs that one day will be made right. He promised that final judgment would come to those wicked people, wickedness, and that eternal bliss would be there for the saved. This is what he's promised us. And it's interesting here, back in our text, if we go back to uh, Titus chapter 2, 
Paul does something that is what most teachers are told to do, and that's repeat yourself. To get a point across, repeat yourself. And so Paul does this. Very interesting. He talks about this basis for expectant living, that it's based upon what Jesus has done for us, and it's based upon what he's promised us. He goes and he repeats this in chapter 3. Okay, let's look at this. He says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Well, doesn't that sound like chapter 2? Right? Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Here we see, he repeats himself, he says, this is what Jesus has done, he saved us, and this is what Jesus has promised us, that we have this hope of eternal life. So folks, we can live expectantly today because of what he's done for us and what he's promised us. And there's so much more that we could say here about this. This is the basis of expectant living. Now, can we take just a moment and let that settle in? Because really, shouldn't that motivate us to live a certain way in our lives? Think about this what Jesus has done for us. And I could sit and go around the room. I thought, you know, why don't we just talk about this? But I don't want to put anyone on the spot. And I'm the one who's supposed to be preaching. But you know, I could point to people and I could say, you know, what do you have in Jesus Christ? What has is, what is God um, given to you in salvation? And you'll be able to share, this is what God has done for me. I mean, there's some people in this crowd that probably were saved from sin, very horrible sin. Now, we're all saved from sin, but there could be some testimonies of what God's done for you. Each of us, if we stopped and thought about it, what Jesus has done for us, we'd be amazed. So think about it for a moment. Can we do this while we're preaching? Can we just stop for a moment and really think, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross for our sins, what did that do for me? And then think, how should that motivate me? Now let's take a moment and think about what he's got promised for us. Eternal life in heaven. The kingdom. Eternity. eternity. That's what he's promised us. How should that motivate us? We could really preach here if we wanted to stop for a moment, but I really just wanted to get us to stop and think what Jesus has done for us and what he's promised us. This is the basis for expectant living. This is the basis for us to live in a way that we are expecting something to come. Then that brings me to the second thing I want to look at, and that's the essence of expectant living. The essence of it. Let's go back there to Titus 2 in our text here. What's the essence of it? What does this look like? You know, we understand that if you say, here, here I've got this prototype for this machine. Well, what does it look like? Well, I don't want to show you. No, I need to see it so I can see what it looks like. That's what we're going to do here. We're going to look in the text and see what does it look like to, lead, to live expectantly? And we see that in verse 12. 
It says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. This is what living expectantly looks like. All right? Now, there's an interesting thing here. It's the word training. Now, the subject of the word training is the word, the, word, the grace of God. That's the subject. That's who's doing the training, the grace of God. Now, if anyone thinks about this, you think, wait a minute, the grace of God, that's a concept. How can it train? Because it's using it like it's a person here. All right, This is a person. And in reality, it is. The words grace of God here is a personification of Jesus Christ. And that's the context here. So when we talk about the grace of God doing the training, who's doing the training? Jesus is doing the training. Now, the word training here, another thing about it, it's the Greek word peduo. And it's not just talking about teaching. The word training here is the concept of training a child. All right? And it also involves chastisement. <laughs> you know what that is. All right? And that's talking about child training. It's not merely imparting instruction. Like a teacher in a class. Like I get up here and I can impart all this stuff to you. But that's not this word training. Training is much much more intense than that. Well, you say, how intense is it? Well, let me ask you this. Have you ever tried to teach a child to eat something they don't want to eat? Yeah, all of you have had kids. You understand that completely. Trying to teach a child to eat something that they don't want to eat. You know, you always see the whole kid in the high chair and then you got that little spoon going in their mouth and it comes out of their mouth. The spoon goes in their mouth. The stuff comes out of their mouth. You know what I'm saying here? And then you have to do something to train them to do that. You set them back down in the chair, stick the spoon in their mouth, they spit it out, stick the spoon in their mouth, spit it out. You keep doing that until finally they don't stop, they stop spitting it out. Right? Because they get the idea. You know, I don't like the chastisement. So, I'm, so any parent who knows that, you know what that training is like. It's not just saying, okay, here, I'm going to give you the spoon of mush and I want you to eat it and I don't want you to spit it out. And you put it in their mouth, they go, mm, no, that's not how it happens. Okay? It takes some intensity. It takes some training. And that's the word that's being used here in Titus 2. Now, I could say another way we could illustrate this is, have you ever tried to get a child, or have you had to, or ever had to discipline a child for refusing to eat something that they don't like? That's hard. You know, that's the time as a parent you're like, am I really a good parent here? Because I have to discipline my child for just because I just just eat it. That's all you got to do is eat it. Because if you eat it, I don't have to discipline you for it. And as a parent, you're like, no, but I have to do this because I need to train them. So, if parents, if you've ever had to discipline a child for not eating something that they should, you know what this intensity is about. And for those of you who've never trained a child to do that, your day's coming. All right, you will experience it. Because I know, parents, you probably had the same kind of rule that I had in our house. Here's what our mantra was in regards to food. Is that I told the kids, you know, you can choose what you like, but we get to choose what you eat. All right? Why? Because there's this intensity to this training. It's not just a saying it. There has to be this training behind it. So back to the training here in Titus chapter 2. Because this grace of God, Jesus Christ, is going to train us to live expectantly. And when we look at this, you say, hang on a second. You're saying that Jesus is training us. Yes. How can you do that? 
he's not with us anymore. You know, the disciples, when he walked the earth with the disciples, he trained them. They lived close together. They had this interaction. They trained them. But today, we don't have that. All right? How does Jesus train us today? Well, by his example. He trains us by an example. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, we see this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What it says here is that Jesus did the hard thing. He did the hard thing for you and I. He went to the cross, he despised the shame, and he looked at it as the joy that was set before him. The joy was us having salvation. That was the joy set before him, and he endured these things. This is our example. You know, living expectantly, as we're going to see in a moment, isn't always going to be easy. But Jesus gave us the example of how to do it. So we see his example. But we also are trained by Jesus in this, by his spirit through the word. We see that in 2 Timothy chapter 3, where it says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We have the Spirit of God using the Word of God in our lives. That trains us. All right? So yes, the grace of God can train us today because Jesus gave us the example and that we have the Spirit of God working through the Word of God here. Now, describing the content of his training, of this training, Paul uses a very... Um, he uses a literary device that he used quite often in his teaching, in his writing, this negative positive thing. Okay? In some of his epistles, he uses a put off, put on. Okay? Um, in essence, he's saying, don't do this, do this. All right? And that's what he does here in regards to this training to be expectant, live, to live expectantly. He gives us a training in this negative, uh, positive context. He says, negative, renounce. Renounce. And he says, positive, live. He says, renounce these things, live this way. And so what I want to do is I want to look at these quickly. Talk about the essence of this training, the essence of biblical, or should I say, the essence of how to live expectantly. Okay? So let's look at the essence. We'll look at first the negative. First he says, we are to renounce anything that is offensive to God. We are to renounce anything that is offensive to God. He says, renounce ungodliness. Now in the New Testament, we see 16 times the word godliness or godly translated from the Greek word eusebia. And the classical use of this Greek word involved respect or reverence for authorities. That's what the word meant when it used outside the scriptures. So according to definition and the context of the words used here, godliness is based upon this, based upon my attitude toward God, a respect for God, an awe of God, a fear of God. So when we talk about godliness, we're talking about some a way that we live that comes out of the fact that we fear God and we, we, we're in awe of Him. It's not just a way of, it's just not a set of rules that we live by. It comes out of our love for Him, our fear of Him, that's what this word godliness. Now, here in our text, Paul puts a negative thing on it. 
uses un, ungodliness. So it's against that. So here we see this negative. Anything that doesn't have a reverence for God or a fear of God needs to be renounced. And folks, this is where it's going to get hard. And this is where it gets hard in my life. This is where it gets hard in your life. Is that this, are we really willing to renounce anything that is offensive to God? Because if we are, we're going to have to first understand what is offensive to God. And I will say, and I'm going to be condemning myself here at the same time, is that I think that we have lightened up on what things we think are offensive to God. I think there's a lot of things that are going on in our lives today that are offensive to God, but we, we just have shrugged it off. And so we have to get back to this whole thing of, is what I'm doing, saying, acting, responding, is this offensive to God? And if it is, we're to renounce it. Now, I know in some of your minds you're like saying, okay, this is great. Rob, give us a list of things that are offensive to God, and we'll do it. No, we wouldn't. All right? Because you're not, you might not like my list. You know, I could put my list right here. And you'd go, okay, those, oh, that one, no, no, don't like that one. Oh, you mean I can't watch that? Oh, no. So then what you'll do is you'll make your own list. And then I'll look at that and go, well, you're forgetting some things, but I don't like what you put on there. See, it's not about making lists. It's about going to the Word of God and finding out really, truthfully, what offends God. And if it does, renounce it. I know that's hard. But it's the Scripture. That's what he says, renounce ungodliness. But he goes on to give us another negative aspect of this essence. And that is that we are to renounce the desires that are characteristic of a world estranged from God. We're to renounce the desires that are characteristic of a world estranged from God. <clears throat> he says, renounce worldly passions. Folks, and I'm not getting on to anyone because I'm getting on to myself here, is that we so often will read through these texts and we'll just gloss over these words instead of really interacting with them. When we interact with the text, it gets uncomfortable. Because he says we're to renounce the desires that are characteristic of a world that's estranged from God. John mentions that in his epistle. In chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, he says, Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. John here links that word passions and desires with the world. And we are to renounce those things. Now these are strong words. These are strong words. And I have to admit in my own life that there are times that I try to dilute the challenge of these imperatives. And I think as believers, if we're honest with ourselves, we would say the same thing, that we have a tendency to dilute the, the challenge of these imperatives. We'll say, yeah, but. Oh, folks, we are so good at doing that. Yeah, but. And it's usually, yeah, what other people are doing, but, but for what I want to do. 
We are so good at picking out flaws in other people and saying, shouldn't be doing that. You should be renouncing that. But then when the scripture turns itself on us, when that spotlight comes onto our lives, we go, yeah, but, no. And I want to encourage us, don't do that. Let the Spirit of God work. And if there's things in our lives that are questionable, we need to filter them through the Word of God and let the Word of God, let the Spirit of God, let Jesus himself train us that we may need to renounce some ungodliness. We may need to renounce some characteristics of the world that are estranged, that is estranged from God. We need to do these things. All right. That was the hard part. Let's get to the positive side. Oh, everyone thinks the positive. Get off the negative. Let's go to the positive. All right. The only thing about positive things, it's just the just the the you know, opposite of the negative. So, I mean, there's still some negative aspect we could look at this. Oh, you're saying no. All right, let's go here. Let's look at this essence. Paul looks the positive things here because he describes the way that the believers should live, that we should live expectantly with three adverbs, self-controlled, upright, and godly. And the way that the sentence is structured in Greek, and I'm only pulling that out of a book because I have no clue how this sentence is structured in Greek because I'm not a Greek major, all right? So I'm depending upon somebody else here for this statement. But what scholars say is that the way that this sentence is structured in the Greek, and pastor's probably going, oh, okay, I wish I was there to say what this is. Okay, but the sentence is structured in Greek. It places a heavy emphasis on these three positive adverbs. Okay? So yes, the negative things are there that we need to understand, but Paul is really placing the emphasis here on this positive things, these positive adverbs. And they indicate our duty to ourselves, to others, and to God. And so, what is he saying here? How should we live expectantly? Well, we are to live in a self-controlled manner. We're to live in a self-controlled manner. And this, this, this adverb, this attribute here, self-control, is something that Paul has dealt with quite often already in the book of Titus. It's interesting. If you look up a word that's repeated, you're going to see this word self-controlled repeated quite often here in Titus 1 and 2. In fact, this word self-control is supposed to identify an elder. It's a quality of an elder in chapter 1 and verse 8. Uh, let me see here. It says, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled. Okay, so he's self-controlled. Then it's also the quality of the spiritual older man. If you go to chapter 2, verse 2, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled. It's also a quality of the older women. If you look there in verse number 3, older women likewise. Okay, so these same qualities are supposed to be there in the older, older women. Um, this is taught to be the younger to, taught to the younger women. Do you notice there in verse 4? And so train the young women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled. Wow, this word just keeps popping up here. That should mean that we should look at it. Okay? And this is also taught to the younger men. Likewise, verse 6, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. And then in verse 7, Paul tells Titus, and you exemplify this. Because he says in verse 7, show yourself in all respects, everything I just said, to be a model of good works so we see here that one of the key things that Paul is trying to teach Titus to teach the elders that they need to teach the people of Crete because those Cretan believers were kind of really different to be self-controlled. That was a key attribute that he wanted the people to understand. And folks, that's the key attribute for us to today that we are to be self-controlled that we're, in a, we're supposed to live in a way that people watch us 
And they know that we're not just flying by the seat of our pants as far as our passions go. That we just don't do things because we want to. And may I ask this? How often in life do we do things simply because we want to do them? That is like the worst way to make a decision. All right? There is no one who has any semblance of understanding or knowledge or is an expert on on uh, personal growth and success in this world, they're not going to say the top thing you need to do is just do whatever you want. That's not it. No, we're to be self-controlled. And you know what? I could go on and talk about that, but you all know what I mean when self-controlled. You know there's an area in your life, and uh, I'm not living self-controlled there. So you know what I'm talking about. Paul here is saying this is a key attribute. If you're going to live expectantly, you need to be self-controlled. But number two, we're to live in an upright manner. We're to live in an upright manner. This is regarding those around us, that we're to live uprightly. So we're supposed to live with other people in mind. Now, I have to share a little funny here. Well, it's probably more funny to me than it is going to be to you, but I just want to share this. That in in preparing for this message, there's been some late nights because I have a full-time job and then pastor asked me about a week ago, could I preach? And I'm like, sure. I didn't realize my schedule was so full. But that's life, I mean. But I remember one night I was studying. I had my books here and had the Bible. I was studying. And I looked back at this passage, and for some reason, just because I was kind of out of it a little bit, I I thought that said uptight (laughs) and not upright. So put it, if you read it again, it just, it brings a chuckle to your face. You know, you're going to live uptight. Now, that's how some of us live, right? We live, you know, we're just, things happen in our lives and we respond in an uptight way. Okay, we are not to live in a way that treats other people wrong. That sounds so simple, doesn't it? But again, we get to the yeah, buts. You know, well, yeah, I would treat that person okay, but this. No, there's no yeah buts in the scripture. You know, we're supposed to be upright. This is in our dealings with other people. So if you're dealing with other believers, your, your behavior should be upright. Okay? Makes sense, right? Uh, when you're dealing with unsaved people, your, your responses should be upright, right? Exactly. How about those people that are enemies? that they don't believe the same way you do. In fact, they're, they're antagonistic towards you. How are you supposed to respond to them? Oh, I know I'm supposed to respond to them. I'm supposed to get back in their face. I'm supposed to tell them what to and what for. Nope. Supposed to be upright. <clears throat> Christians leave their upright responses at the door when they go on social media. Don't they? Oh, it's so easy to hide behind a social media thing. And we can say whatever we want. Somebody says something, I don't agree with that. But is our interactions upright? That's one of those yeah, but things. Yeah, but you don't understand. No, we all should completely understand that when we're interacting with others, it should be upright. And you say, well, you don't know what that person has done to me. You don't know how that person has offended me. You don't know how that person has hurt me. Hang on a second. What did Jesus Christ tell the disciples in the Sermon on the Mount? About loving your enemies. That's one of those biggest yeah buts. Yeah, but this person is my enemy. They hate me. They don't, they, they, what are you supposed to do? Love them. 
Love them. Treat them right. Oh, I know that I'm going against countercultural Christianity here. Because today we think, well, if somebody has offended me, then I should be able to respond and retaliate. Where do we get that? There's no scripture that backs that up whatsoever. Oh, they're imprecatory psalms. Oh, let's not go there. All right? So what I'm saying is, folks, that we need to be upright in our dealings. That's living expectantly. That's living really beyond this world. But then there's a third positive. You say, Brother Al, these haven't been too positive. But they are. We're to live in a godly manner. We're to live in a godly manner. And as we saw earlier, according to the definition in the context in, especially the pastoral epistles, you know this word godly and ungodliness, or the, the word godliness and godly, appear most in the pastoral epistles? In fact, in 1 Timothy, there's nine times, out of the 16 times it's found, nine times in 1 Timothy. So this is something that God wanted us to know, especially in regards to how we treat other people. We're to live in a godly manner, living in the fear and the awe of the Lord. Now, Understanding this comes from the inside. This is, this is a fear and awe of God that I have that comes from the inside, but it has to show itself forth on the outside. Okay? It's a godliness that comes... Godliness in the scriptures always, always connected to our behavior. Okay? It's an inner quality, but it's always connected to our behavior. We could also almost say that it's married to our lifestyle. We see that in 2 Peter chapter 3 where Peter is talking about the end times here. He's getting on this thing about being expectant, expectant what's going to happen and what God's promised to us. And part of that promise is this destruction of the wickedness and destruction of everything that we see to make something new. And so Peter chimes in here. He says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in all lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting. There's that word. Waiting. Waiting waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. What's he saying here? That while we're waiting, while we're living expectantly, we need to live godly. So Peter here brings us right back around to what Paul was telling Titus, this concept of expectant living. All right, let's wrap it all up. Paul has been telling Titus here about how to live expectantly. And of course, we understand the context. The expectant living here is expecting the return of Jesus Christ. And folks, that's going to be such a great day. When Jesus Christ comes back. Now, we could sit and debate about the rapture and second coming and all this. But I tell you what, when he's talking about here, when Jesus Christ comes back, this is at the end. This is when he's going to make everything brand new. And this is how we should be living. We should be living expecting this, the return of Christ. And so as we look at this, as we've examined this, this expectant living, we need to look at that, the return of Christ, in such a way that we would expect anything else and on a much more of a magnitude. All right? Let's go back to the beginning of the message. When you were young, when you were a kid, and you were expecting a package in the mail, how did you live? Well, if it was me, and you know that coming in the mail was that cool spy decoder ring, you know? That you got in the mail because you clipped 
off a box, uh, a cereal box, and you sent it in, and it took three weeks for them to get it, and then five weeks for it to get back. All right, what was I doing as a kid expecting that? Well, I didn't just let it go. I'm like, I'm like, oh, is it going to come? Is it coming today? How about that job? That job that you really were looking forward to. And you know, I know there's five other guys applying for this, but I know, I really know that in the bottom of my soul that I'm going to get this job. And you lived in such a way, you're like, okay, I'm going to check my email. I'm going to check, make sure there's expectantly. Marriage, getting married. Oh, I tell you what, it's so fun to watch young people when they're engaged. Is that, oh, oh. And then they get to the stage, not like that, but like all the work that has to go into this. You know, there's a lot of work that goes into it. I mean, those decisions you make, hey, let's get married. Oh, that's an easy decision. Now we had all the hard ones to do. But you live expectantly. You're like, I can hardly wait for the day. You know, that's why they start counting down, you know? Yeah, we're going to get married in 27 days, 36 hours, 10 minutes, 2 seconds, and 1,000 milliseconds. I mean, they go all the way down there. Why? Because they're expecting it. And then, of course, expecting a child. I mean, that's an amazing thing. Think about how you live expecting those things. Well, we should be living in light of our Savior's return, expecting that so much more. And so I want to challenge us today. As Paul gave us those negative things, grace teaches us that there's some negative things that we have to do. If we're going to live expectantly, we have to renounce ungodliness. We have to renounce worldly pleasures, worldly desires. But then he says we have to live self-controlled. We need to live upright. And we need to live godly. So let me encourage you today. How much more should we live expecting the return of the one who saved us from our sins? We need to live, as he says, expectantly, expectant living. Let's pray.